Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information and advisory services partner for emerging market executives. We partner with business leaders at over 215 multinationals by providing them with information assets, advisory support, and consulting services that help inform and empower their emerging markets growth strategy. The focus of today's podcast is actually twofold. First, to discuss FSG's views on the implications of the recent OPEC deal. And secondly, to share the key takeaways from FSG's recently released market spotlight on Qatar. My name is Richard Leggett, and I'm the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group. And I'm joined today from FSG's London office by Zeynep Kosovay-Zulu, the leader of FSG's MENA research practice. As a reminder, this research and all of our content is available to FSG clients via our Frontier View platform. Zeynep, thanks for joining me today. Great to be here. This is a super timely discussion, uh, especially given the recently announced OPEC deal, not to mention the fact that many of our clients are finalizing their uh, MENA strategic plans for 2017. And we have a lot of ground to cover over the next 15 minutes or so. So I want to break the discussion into the two main parts that kind of uh, are around the agenda that I outlined in the opening. We'll start with OPEC and its implications to the MENA region and then turn our attention to to the Qatar market spotlight. Does that sound good? Sounds perfect. So it was late last week that OPEC announced that it would reduce production by 1.2 million barrels per day from the global oil production marketplace. And if other non-OPEC countries such as Russia also join in, it's possible that the cut will be up to 2% of global production. And this, of course, sent prices back above $50 per barrel in the short term. And I guess as a starting point, from your perspective, what specifically does this deal involve? Well, um, in OPEC's November meeting, we saw the cartel confirm its preliminary agreement uh, back from September and agree to cut production, as you said, by around 1.2 million barrels per day. So this will be effective from January 2017 onwards, and it will be um, have to um, be renewed in six months. So we're looking at, um, more specifically, Saudi Arabia cutting almost around 486,000 barrels per day, and amongst the cartel's members, it will be followed by Iraq at around 210,000 and UAE at around 139,000 barrels per day. The key points are that Libya and Nigeria are exempt from the deal, while Iran receives a production cap um, of at 3.9 million barrels per day. And currently, Iran is producing around that level, so it's more like a freeze for Iran. And the last important point, as, as you mentioned um, as well, is that Russia has agreed to cut production uh, as well and join OPEC um, and reduce its output by around 300,000 uh, barrels per day. Do you see any risks uh, to the implementation of this deal in your view? Well, that's a very important question. Um, we see two types of risks um, with this OPEC deal. One is, of course, to the actual implementation uh, of the deal, and second is its effectiveness. In terms of implementation, um, we are the main risk we're watching is, of course, whether countries breach the deal. Um, and if concerns over one of the major countries overproducing become serious, then the whole deal could actually be undermined. And also, we need to remember that there are already disagreements over how much these countries are currently producing. OPEC's records of production show quite significant differences between uh, production claims by the government and production estimates by secondary sources. So it will actually be very um, interesting to see how OPEC ensures all countries abide by their quotas. Um, That's yet to be seen. 
And the second uh, issue is, of course, whether the deal will be effective. Now, of course, each country has its own aims in participating in the deal, but from the perspective of major MENA markets like Saudi Arabia, for example, the deal is aimed at creating a floor for uh, oil prices in 2017. They would, their ideal goal would be above $60, around $60 per barrel, um, if anything above $55 or so. Now there are a few factors we believe would undermine this goal. Um, the higher the prices go, especially above mid-50s, the more U.S. shale producers are incentivized to increase production. Um, there are significant question marks around whether Donald Trump will prioritize deregulating the energy market. Um, which could again further incentivize shale producers. Um, and of course, we're expecting the U.S. Federal Reserve to increase interest rates, not only in December, but throughout 2017. So an appreciation of the U.S. dollar and uh, other uh, factors like shale production would actually put a lot of downward pressure on oil prices. So this creates quite a bit of a risk to the deal's actually uh, effectiveness. Does that then result, Zainab, in further cuts in when the deal comes up for renewal in six months? Could, could we see this as the beginning of a series of cuts in production to try to put that floor of pricing in place? Uh, that becomes a bit more tricky. And number one would be, um, of course, whether um, how and how much U.S. shale production actually increases and to what levels that brings down prices. Um, and in an environment where uh, production from the U.S. has increased significantly, um, OPEC would find it much harder to justify to its own members um, and itself that there, sh- there should be cutting more, um, where their market share would be even uh, more undermined. This, they believe, is a, is a, much, is a relatively good balance where um, around a little above $50 a barrel, uh, around 55 uh, from their perspective, um, is good enough for them to incrementally increase revenue, uh, but not necessarily drive a huge increase in, uh, in shale production. Um, but yeah, this, that, that this decision will be a lot more difficult than the one taken in November. So let's turn to the implications, first of all, from uh, your outlook for the MENA markets. And then secondly, I'll come back and I want to talk a little bit about what it, what it means in terms of actions our clients should be taking. So let's start, though, with your outlook for the MENA market. Well, we actually are quite cautious with this deal and its impact for uh, the MENA uh, oil exporters. Uh, we believe that you know the minimal price and, and revenue increases that can be gained from this deal will be insufficient to significantly boost government finances um, and um, or, or delay any of the MENA government's reform plans, such as tax hikes or subsidy cuts in 2017. So we're still going ahead with those expectations. Um, if we do see oil prices remain above $55 per barrel, close to $60, for a few months, around five to six months, then we can think about upward revisions to our forecast for oil exporting markets. But like I said, we think that that's not a very high um, likelihood scenario. Um, and at the same time, even if that was to happen, we need to keep in mind that after regulatory changes, many MENA governments and countries have now um, have their domestic fuel prices moving in conjunction with global oil prices. So in a scenario of higher prices, we can see inflationary pressures increase in countries like Egypt, Morocco, even in the UAE. Um, And for Iran, we also believe the cap they've received uh, in the deal is around their current production capacity. So they're not looking at a major boost to um, to their production, or nor a major obstacle to their uh, current trajectory. So we factored into our, our forecast their current capacity. Um, we're refining, or let's say, we're refraining from any major revisions from for any of our oil exporting markets until we can see clear signs throughout Q1 of next year. Um, 
of sustained oil prices uh, above mid uh, $50 or let's say above 55%, which we believe is a very low likelihood. Does it put any incremental pressure on uh, oil importing countries? Yes, that, that's uh, actually a bit more of a, of a risk that we can see for uh, the region. Like I said, for some of these uh, markets that used to ha- subsidize fuel but have now removed those subsidies um, in Egypt, Morocco, uh, as well as UAE, we are seeing um, pressure um, on, on inflation um, as well as in countries like Turkey, um, uh, Lebanon it, and, and Jordan. They will also see uh, certain pressures on government finances to, to sustain some of the um, subsidies they're putting on on fuel if actually prices continue to increase, which we believe will not be the case, um, at least in the next few months. So let's talk about uh, actions that our clients um, that are wearing the hat of being responsible for the MENA countries in their portfolio, uh, actions that they should be taking. Yes, I think most importantly, we suggest our clients um, to manage their expectations of a major recovery in government spending in MENA's oil exporting markets in 2017 and set their targets accordingly. Key actions then become uh, adjusting product portfolios, marketing strategies, and most importantly, channel capabilities to adapt to increasingly more price-sensitive customers in the region, whether that be governments, businesses, uh, or consumers. And these are all uh, actions and strategies that you go into some detail in our MENA Regional Outlook, most recent one, correct? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, great. I want to shift our attention now to uh, your recent market spotlight research on Qatar. Uh, I think it's an interesting market. While not a very large country, uh, there's some interesting uh, facts about it. It boasts the third largest natural gas reserves, one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world, and EMEA's highest GDP per capita, making it hugely strategic for our clients uh, as a a cornerstone in their MENA portfolios. Not to mention, I think it has one of the uh, best uh, connection airports uh, when I'm traveling uh, over to Asia. So I very much uh, enjoy spending time there myself. But so why don't we start with your outlook for the country for 2017 and maybe put it in a little bit of recent historical context and then looking out kind of beyond 2017 uh, in terms of your your economic forecasts. Sure. So Qatar, of course, is being challenged by the slow oil price environment, as well as all of other uh, oil exporting markets in the region. But there are a few factors that are allowing Qatar to um, uh, register slightly higher uh, growth levels. The first is the fact that around 60% of Qatar's energy exports are actually gas, uh, and almost all of them are based on long-term supply purchase agreements. So Qatar is actually slightly less vulnerable to the volatility in global oil prices. Um, and second is the, the need to maintain infrastructure investments in the market in light of World Cup 2022. So our GDP forecasts for 2017 specifically are around 3.3%, which is higher than the mean average of 3% and the GCC average of 2%. But, uh, like you said, um, first of all, our bias for revisions is to the downside, but um, when you compare this 3.3% level historically, um, we're looking at around 11% growth uh, on average we've seen between 2000 and 2014. So the market itself is experiencing quite a bit of a slowdown, um, and we're not expecting that to improve over the next few years. One of the specific implications that that slowdown has is around government spending, and that's a key trend you highlight in your report. Uh, And you you say government spending is going to remain moderate in 2017. Um, Could you put a little more color around this? And uh, and obviously, if the recent OPEC deal 
has any implications to your view there? Yes, unfortunately, the the Qatari government is um, significantly under pressure from from low energy prices, if, especially considering almost all of its 98% of its exports are hydrocarbons. Um, so the government budget um, is expected to register a deficit this year of around 7%, and this is actually coming down from around 16% uh, surpluses we've seen in the, over the last few years. Um, so as you can see, we're looking at major pressures on on the budget. Um, and unfortunately, we don't expect the OPEC deal to provide uh, an upside simply because we are cautious about the sustainability of the price increase it can generate for oil. Um, and also, like we said, Qatar does rely a bit more on, on natural gas, where um, despite the long-term contracts, the, uh, the prices there have also uh, fallen. Now, on the, on the flip side, uh, the Qatar government does have alternative revenue sources. It has been drawing down on its deposits in domestic banks, issuing local as well as foreign debt. Um, and of course, it has its investment revenues from the, the sovereign wealth fund you've mentioned. Uh, the key factor for our clients, uh, I believe here, is that the government is choosing to direct more of its resources to infrastructure investments in preparation for the World Cup than its recurrent expenditures, where uh, we would have the procurement budget where our clients would sell into. So the shift of resources away from operating expenses to CapEx is also keeping our government spending forecasts low at around 1% for 2017. And so it's quite important to have strong government engagement uh, and very surgical uh, selling strategies. Yes, yes, definitely, especially over the next few years when we see a lot more competition in, in government tenders. So one of the other trends or recommendations you make generally when approaching the market uh, is that clients approach it with a sector-specific lens, and there are some sectors that are performing better and likely to continue to do so. Could you talk about those? I, I suspect it's tied to this infrastructure theme uh, as well as the energy theme, but, per but perhaps you can go into a little more detail there. Uh, yes, of course. So due to its small size and high dependence on oil and, and gas, the opportunity in Qatar for most multinational companies is very narrow, um, probably looking at a niche segment of a very specific sector. Um, and uh, one of the key sectors driving growth, exactly as you said, uh, is infrastructure, public transportation, and more specifically rail transportation projects are definitely receiving high um, investment and resources right now. Um, health infrastructure as well does continue to be a, a priority, um, and most specifically public-private partnerships are likely to become more important um, uh, for the government uh, for these uh, infrastructure plans. The second is hospitality and commercial real estate. We're definitely seeing significant increase in construction activity in these sectors, um, especially because there are expectations of large influx of tourists for the World Cup. Um, and of course, the government is trying to expand the tourism sector, but there is still a risk of oversupply in the next few years of, of this um, retail um, and this commercial and hospitality space. Um, but at least current levels of activity can create demand for industrial companies um, for the next few years. And last but not least is, of course, uh, duty-free. Um, like you've mentioned, Rich, um, Doha is an, is an important hub um, for um, airline, especially for Qatar Airways. Uh, and, and 
the luxury consumer goods segment um, is important in Qatar internally, uh, but the slowdown in the economy, the cap to public sector wages, slowdown in the arrival of new managerial level expats does limit the growth of this uh, consumer luxury goods segment inside Qatar, but um, especially because the, the Qatar Airways uses Do Doha as a hub, uh, we are seeing consistently um, increasing passenger flow throughout the airport. Um, around 17.6 million people um, visited their, uh, Doha's uh, Hamad International Airport in the first half of 2016. So that continues to create an important market size for our clients. And then finally, Zainab, you highlight the importance for our clients of, uh, of choosing and working closely with the right partners in order to succeed in the market. And that's both in terms of how you manage your partners more carefully against this uh, slightly more challenging backdrop but also leveraging your partners more to, to help you surgically find these higher pockets of growth. Could you maybe share some of the recommendations along each of those sets of recommendations? Of course. Now, these two vectors are actually very much intertwined. As you pointed out, close um, and careful management of partners becomes more important in Qatar, firstly because we don't expect the market's performance uh, and size to justify setting up a significant local presence in the market. Um, so the reliance on partners to find those opportunities um, for your business to grow will be much, much uh, more pronounced. And second, these partners will be facing certain challenges uh, they haven't experienced before, um, namely a slowdown in government tenders for products and services procurement, uh, a much more price-sensitive government, um, tighter liquidity in the market, so much higher borrowing costs, uh, fluctuating confidence amongst businesses, and a lot of talent management issues, especially in terms of keeping Qatari employees um, amid minimal wage increases. So we're looking at uh, fresh challenges for your Qatari partner and also a lot more reliance from our clients on their Qatari partners to find um, pockets of opportunity um, just to sell more. So we believe providing strategic thought partnership and guidance to long-term partners uh, regarding some of these issues would actually be critical to ensure our clients' brands continue to be top of mind for their partners and that their partners maintain marketing investments and sales efforts um, in an undisrupted way in, uh, in Qatar. And of course, that's an area where we've written a lot of research and we can be quite helpful uh, from an advisory and consulting perspective. Zainab, I think we're up against time, so I want to thank you for taking the time for this excellent and insightful discussion, uh, very timely as well. I encourage all of our listeners to read our Cutter Market Spotlight Report, and more importantly, as a reminder, any FSG client can speak to Zainep or any member of the FSG research team at any time by just scheduling uh, via your FSG client relationship director. You can also access all of our research, the Frontier Data Leading Indicator Database, and all of FSG's content using our Frontier View dashboards on your Frontier View platform. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance in your emerging market portfolio.